our featured BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Pediatric Brain Tumor Foundation, SOAR365, USA for UNHCR. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and we're your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked-about charities. I'm Art Taylor. You know, on this show, we uncover many different ways of giving back, contributing to society, and growing humanity so that we can all move forward in a positive direction. And one area that has been hopefully beginning to get better addressed in our country, although we still have miles and miles to go before we sleep, is the whole issue of race racism, and dealing with some of the fundamental root causes of racism in our society. And once we understand that, of course, we want to begin to try to address those root causes so that we can get past this horrible scourge that has continued to harm us as a country continue to hurt our people, and it's continued to hold us back, really, in ways that can almost be ways that, frankly, can be quantified economically and certainly socially. The fact that Black people in this country who helped build this nation through their free labor as slavery, as slaves, never were compensated for that effort, were never given a choice to contribute that labor and effort to the building of this country. The fact that nothing has really ever been done to essentially repay them for that contribution. And in fact, we still see remnants of how their lack of payment for that labor affects them in our society today. We get to the question of, How might we, as a nation, address that? We even get to the question of how can we heal as a society unless we address it? I'll just give you one quick example. There are still communities in this country that were subjected to what's known as redlining. Redlining. That is... If you were African-American, this is where you were sent to live. You couldn't live outside of those redlined districts. And in fact, it was even hard to get mortgages and ways to finance your construction of your home or to actually get a mortgage to live in an existing home. You were redlined because you were black. You were going to be in in a neighborhood that was going to be devalued economically. This still exists today. I can tell you personally, I live in an area that is redlined. We have a beautiful home in Prince George's County that if it were situated anywhere outside of this majority Black-owned county would be worth 40 to 50% more than it currently is worth. That is simply a function of racism in our society. 
we've lost millions of dollars. We've lost trillions of dollars as a race because of redlining. When you think about how black people and how people in this country can move forward economically, it's usually because of home ownership. But if we're not being compensated for our homes, if our homes aren't valued the same as other homes, we can't get the same value out of those homes. Just one small example of how racism has affected us economically. So there are people, fortunately, in this country who have the privilege, and I won't say privilege in a way that is used in this life. I'll say privilege from the standpoint, I'm glad they're doing it, of thinking about how we can actually level that playing field, how we can actually repay or make people who've been subject to this racism and this economic degradation whole again. And I am really fortunate today to have a couple of people on the show with me who are working that issue. The organization that they are representing is a group called Liberation Ventures. And I want to just say to their leader, Aria Florent, who's with us today, how pleased I am that you're working this issue. And I'm just going to tell you just a little bit about Aria. She was born in Colorado, and she'll tell you more about her background. But imagine being born in a community where you are of mixed race and you are thinking through this whole matter of who am I as a person? You know, am I black? Am I white? I feel like I'm both because I have parents that are both. But knowing that something isn't quite right, something is off about how you're being treated, how you're perceived in society, and then growing into adulthood, wanting to figure out what that is and how to address it. We're going to talk to Aria about that and how that led her to this business, this charity work of addressing uh, these inequalities, these economic inequalities. And with her is Tonyel, Tonyel Edwards, who is a also a, a person who graduated from Howard University, went to work in a major bank, and then felt that she needed to do more to contribute to society. And somehow these two connected, and here they are working together. And we'll let you just tell us how you're working together on this. But here they are, these two wonderful women working on this issue to try to help us all understand, first of all, what reparations might look like if we were to do it, and then how we might achieve it and what's being done right now to get us there. So ladies, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Sorry for that extra long introduction, but we're going to spend as much time as you need to get this story out and get this work out that you're doing. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Art. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. You gave us such great introductions. I appreciate that. I'll quickly share how Aria and I connected and then toss it over to Aria to, to get us going around the amazing work that Liberation Ventures has been doing. So I had an opportunity. And this is Tanyelle, by the way, everybody. This is Tanyelle. Hello, everybody. I, uh, so I joined Tanyelle Edwards, partner at Bridgespan, and joined Bridgespan about a year and a half ago following uh, spending some time in philanthropy and at a, at a foundation, private foundation in Houston. And when I, as a black woman, so lived experience as a black woman in America, in the South, um, two hardworking parents who have positioned me incredibly well in life, while also at the same time interacting with every single barrier that one could imagine and all of the systemic injustices that exist in our world. And when I joined Bridgespan, made the intentional decision to I wanted all of my work to be focused on what does it take to actually close the gaps? I'm tired of talking about gaps. I'm tired of talking about the inequities, the injustices. What do we do? And 
in a con- uh, having a meeting with Aria was one of my first meetings at Bridgespan, and she shared the work that Liberation Ventures was doing around reparations and racial repair. And I was incre- both incredibly moved, but it was also so practical. So it's like, okay, this is this is the missing conversation. And the hypothesis going into coming out of the conversation with Aria is like there there have to be more foundations, private foundations folks with, with, with resources, thinking about this issue and investing. But these stories aren't being told in the way that they should. They're not being lifted up, not being aggregated and shared. It's like, this is a viable strategy to actually close the gaps that exist in our um, in our country. And so we, Aria and I teamed up to Liberation Ventures and Bridgespan, uh, made the decision to work together to co-author a report to understand what exactly is the role of philanthropy in reparations. And this led to the articles that are on both bridgefan.org and SSIR right now around the role of philanthropy and reparations. Uh, so I will let uh, Aria talk more about kind of the origin story of Liberation Ventures and, and how she decided to, to choose to work with us because she could have worked with anyone. She's brilliant. Thanks, Danielle. And thank you, Art, for that introduction. And it's so interesting, you know, as you mentioned, growing up in Colorado, you know, I always identified as Black. My dad, we were in a circumstance where my parents just thought it was incredibly important to make sure that we, the message was always, you got to be twice as good. You got to dot all your I's, cross all your T's. And so I was very aware of being different from a, from a young age and still had a lot of questions about what it meant to be biracial. And my, my mom is white. And I think like broadly what that looks like is identifying sort of like, what does it mean for me to have an identity that holds both oppressors and the oppressed? And I think that that duality, now I know that that duality is not just me, it's our nation, right? It's a, it's the story of our nation. And so the questions that I was holding became sort of like, what does it mean? What would it mean for our nation to really become whole? And so I, Liberation Ventures, our North Star is to see federal comprehensive reparations policy for Black Americans. And the way that we think about reparations is actually different from, I think, what a lot of people sort of immediately assume it to be. Uh, Most people think reparations equals cash for Black people. And we have a much more expansive perspective on what reparations really is and what its function truly is, which which is repair. And so, yes, there is a financial component to reparations, and it is also non-financial. It is also about systemic change. And I think in that vein, we really see it as kind of a step along the path to truly building a just multiracial democracy. Any country that has difference is going to have breakdown. And that breakdown or that conflict is actually not the problem. The problem is when you are not able to repair it. And so the way we think about it is this country is only as strong as our ability to repair. And so a lot of the way that we think about our work is not only about policy change, but about culture change and about building a culture of repair. And in that realm, in that vein, we really believe that reparations is not just, it is not just an economic project, it is a political and a cultural project, and it, and it benefits all of us. You know, Black folks are at the center, but it really benefits all of us. We exist to support the amazing movement of organizations and people across the country doing work in this space. We support them with grant making and narrative change and capacity building. And it is, as you said in the beginning, it is a privilege to do that work, to be in a space of really deeply thinking about what What do I want this world to look like? How do I want it to look different 20 years from now? And what am I doing now to actually sow those, put those seeds in the ground and water them so that in 20 years, things are, things look different from the way they are now. Amazing. I want to come back to that, but first I want to just ask you both, how did you come to this? I mean, both of you, I know a little bit about your backgrounds, have amazingly powerful degrees from very prestigious universities, you could have done all sorts of things that would have enriched you, and maybe you have already, 
But how did you then decide, you know what? I think I want to spend time doing this. This is kind of where I believe I should be spending my time right now. How did you come to that? And I want to ask you that because there are others out there who are probably toiling away at things and wondering if they can make that leap to do something that they're more passionate about. And I want to just chase that passion that led you both to this work today. So, Aria, why don't you start? Yeah. So I come to this, I think, through a few different paths that have converged. The first path was certainly the experience of growing up in Colorado, hearing people say things about me and about my family that I knew were problematic, but not as a child, not having the language and the context that I needed in order to um, push back, uh, in order to articulate what was problematic. So when I went to college, I studied comparative studies in race and ethnicity. I like to say I was a critical race theory major before it was cool. And that was really a healing journey for me, both really understanding what it meant to have my identity, but also how then I'm positioned within a system uh, and and a history, a legacy that starts with chattel slavery and essentially has seen racial injustice permutate across different institutions in different ways since. And I really think about this work as a question of like, what does it mean to actually process through the shame of our origin in order to get to a place that is reparative and that is whole? And so I'd say that's one strand. And then part of my professional background includes working at kind of a a big management consulting firm, which loves to pride itself on solving problems. And therefore, thinking about solutions that are at the scale of the problem. And during my time there, I really started to think about how, like, what would it look like to develop and design a much more deep, deep, deep root cause level intervention on racial injustice and to design that intervention that's actually at the scale of the problem, at the scale of the wealth gap and at the scale of the injustice across systems. And so myself and a co-founder started thinking about this and over time really landed on wealth disparity and anti-Black narratives as sort of these two really strong anchors that end up holding our unjust systems in place and really landed on reparations as um, something that actually could sort of shock the system on those two things and have a ripple effect of positive outcomes across systems. And so we started working almost five years ago, and I've been full-time for about three and a half years. So Aria, I wanted to ask you a little more about anti-Black narratives and beginning to address that as one of the pillars of your work right now. Why do you feel that that, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I wanted to maybe know how you came to that as one of the most effective ways of healing? Mm, Yeah. I think fundamentally the answer goes back to the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, as well as about this country are really, really powerful. And they determine so much about how we make sense of the world and make meaning of what happens and why it happens. I also believe that narrative change is critical for making policy change durable. So we've seen many policy wins, but we've also seen them get gutted over time because the underlying mindsets and worldviews that drove those policies in the first place weren't changed. And we've seen across time the way that a narrative of racial hierarchy has impeded sort of our psyches as Americans. You know, I, I can name specific 
narratives at different points in time. Obviously, there was a long history of believing that Black people were subhuman. The eugenics movement then tried to use pseudoscience to legitimate that, like the Christian like theology, in addition, sort of piled on to that eugenicist worldview for a long time. And that brings like moving into the more recent past, things like the welfare queen were totally untrue, but they were stories that then were used to justify certain policies that kept Black people in their positions at the bottom of that racial hierarchy. And we see that now in so many ways, sort of like undertones of implying that Black people are not competent or are lazy or are in some way subhuman. And the way this actually comes to the fore often is on the question of using the word reparations. So a lot of people think that it's such a divisive word and they ask me like, what, do you have to use that word? Like, could you actually, and I understand that it is a spicy word currently in our our lexicon, but that to me is due to anti-Blackness, right? Because if you look across time and across even this country's history, like reparations is not a new concept, right? And it's not specific to Black people. Reparations is a legal international framework for thinking about how societies function together. And so that word only becomes a spicy word when you apply it to Black people, which then to me is like the perfect example of how embedded anti-Blackness is in our country. And so what I always say to folks is, if I were to choose to not use the word, I would actually be undermining my own cause because I would be assuming that I, that Black people are not owed the, the, and deserving of the dignity that comes with receiving reparations. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned the anti-Blackness and I think about not only how non-Black people see us, but how we see ourselves. And I think that can be equally, if not even more damaging to our progress when we believe those narratives and we mistake things like coming, getting along, for instance, or assimilating. We mistake assimilating with being lesser than who we are, not being able to show up as who we are. And I I worry more sometimes about our ability to see ourselves differently, frankly, than I do sometimes about how the people who are not black think of us. And we don't talk about this a lot outside of our own community. And I'm often reluctant to bring it up now because many of the things that we see negative in many of our communities are still driven by those external factors. But because we've taken them on, they manifest themselves in very damaging ways, right? I mean, some of the violence that we see towards each other, some of the crime that we see towards each other, some of the hatred that we project on each other still has an external external cause, an external root but we've taken it on and we kind of own it and it leads to these kinds of harmful conditions and situations. It's hard to even get sometimes for us to even support each other in things. And I know that that wasn't natural. That's not natural. It's not natural for people who are like people are like generally support each other. That's usually a natural thing, right? It's not generally a natural thing. So I don't know. I'm just I just worry about that too. And I may be getting out of my knowledge base here, but I'm just living talk about some lived experience here. Tanya, go ahead. That was that's by design. I mean, yep. 
trillions of dollars have been poured into the narratives and the the policies and the processes to get us there. Uh, and and so that's exactly what we're trying to, with, with this particular work, trying to undo. And that was a place where Ari and I aligned strongly as a value of our work together that we'd say the word because it was so easy to be like, well, should we just water it? Should we just, you know, just start here and then maybe move to that? like no i mean slaveholders got reparations so like that that reparations is a thing it's been happening in our country and what does it look like for us to truly think about the people who are on the ground dozens of organizations who are doing this work developing strategy thinking about what it looks like what does it look like for them to be resourced and that's the approach that that's the reason bridge van got involved the the work was already underway it's been happening for a long time uh since before emancipation and so our thinking was, we we recognize that as a social impact advisory, we have access to both philanthropy and nonprofits. And so how do we potentially get more dollars off the sidelines into this incredible and important investment to potentially get us to close in those gaps that we constantly talk about? It's almost like we're in a, a wash cycle. We're always talking about what's wrong and we're not really reimagining what what the future should look like and the investments that it's going to take to get us to that that future that we imagine. So one of the things you both said was there's a scale that we need to achieve to do this work. You talk about doing this work at scale. What is the extent of the challenge and therefore the scale that we must work at in order to address it? What are we talking about? It's a great question. And there's so many ways to answer it. I think you can answer it from a monetary perspective, looking at the scale of the racial wealth gap, um, which is by different figures, upwards of 10 trillion. And I would think about that challenge as not just the challenge of closing that gap, but also keeping it closed. And that's actually a different but connected part of the challenge. But I think in addition there is a massive cultural challenge that we are facing as well as it relates to how we understand this country and what we're equipped to do in order to build a just and equitable future. And so what I mean by that is when we started this work, we asked ourselves this kind of fundamental question, which is what is repair? Like that's such an abstract concept. So if we're going to actually operationalize it, we have to break it down into its component parts. And so Liberation Ventures created a framework that reckoning, acknowledgement, accountability, and redress. And the way we think about those four things is that they need to operate in a continual cycle in order for us to build a culture of repair in this country. And we as individuals have to be equipped. We have to know how to do those things. Right now, the way that we come of age in this country, nothing really teaches us how to do this. And so my question is, how do we become a society where you can't grow up without learning about slavery and about the legacy of injustice in this country? And you can't grow up without knowing how to listen to someone and actually understand when a system is causing harm and then be an agent of repair trying to figure out how to make that system more reparative. And so to me, those are the sort of like muscle building exercises that we need. I would always think about it as going to the gym, right? Like when you go to the gym, you lift weights, your muscles get stronger. But if you stop, they atrophy. You never, there's no, like, you don't just stay at the status quo. You have to keep, you have to keep going even to stay uh, even to maintain. And that's the way that I think about what it would look like for us to actually build a culture of repair in this country. Well, and the cost, it seems, has gone up more recently with places like Florida and others basically saying there are certain things we don't even want to allow you to teach. Yes. You know, we can't even we can't even bring it up in schools. So the that just raises the cost and expands the scale for what you're trying to do. There's so many institutions that have to be infected with this way of thinking. Yes. Yes. And I'll just, 
I'll name something there, which I think is important, which is that, yes, we're going to see backlash. We have always seen backlash in our movements. And the backlash is actually proof that we are winning, that we are making progress. And if you look at actually 18 to 29 year olds, 45% of 18 to 29 year olds support reparations versus it's around, it's around 30% for the general population, which by the way, is higher than support was for marriage equality when that movement got started. Um, but I think your point is really, really important in the sense that we reserve the word reparations for what the public sector needs to do because of the state sanctioned harm. But that does not let the social or the private sector off the hook. Like we know that institutions are huge sort of drivers of culture in our society. And so we know that those institutions can can engage in racial repair as well. Well, that's really uh, well said because I'm on a board of an organization called the American Institute for Graphic Arts, AIGA. And this is a trade association for people who are graphic designers and designers of, of other kinds. And if you can just think about the power of images. Yes. To shape our culture, right? And Yes. And I've said at AIGA, we tend to focus on the profession itself, even though we have a dual mission of trying to to impact society too, I've I've always pushed not being a graphic artist myself to say to them we need to really lean into that societal piece and make sure that we're putting images out that are not harmful, images that are stressing the kinds of things that you're saying now that are about healing. Certainly we don't want to confine people to doing things a certain way, but we want to make them aware as professionals that your images make a difference in how people are perceived in this culture. And so I think of them as just one institution, but a very powerful institution when you think about how we are drawn to images and how we take our being and who we are from those images that we see. So I just wanted to, to mention that, but there's so many out there. And again, I just want to encourage you to continue your work. Let me ask you this. You said also you want to begin to deal with some of the deepest root causes. And you, you came up with these two, economic being one, and the other more focused on culture. What are some of the things that sort of got left on the chopping block, so to speak, when you were putting your work together? What are some of the other areas that need some degree of focus, but got left on the, on the editing you know, table, so to speak? You know, it's an interesting question. I think that I would reframe the question slightly in the sense that I think where we sort of what ended up happening was we did have in the early days, we knew that we were, we wanted to be focused on moving large amounts of dollars into the movement, but we were thinking a lot about what is the right sort of moonshot goal to be focused on. And we landed on reparations as that moonshot goal, but there were a few others that we thought about. And they had to do with neighborhoods, they had to do with politics, they had to do with poverty. But what we realized was that sort of all of that is further downstream from this question of how do we actually repair from the origins of this country's history. You know, Re Reconstruction was only 12 years. And so I don't know if I would name the, that they sort of got completely left off the chopping block, because I think they're still so connected to what reparations can mean. But I think we just ultimately got to the fact that if we can't actually repair harm, then we are 
Well, let me put it in a different way. We need to build the capacity to repair harm across issue areas if we're going to be able to actually solve these challenges at scale. Tanya, I wanted to ask you about how you're seeing, in other words, what kind of progress are you, are we making? You're, you're kind of in it, but you're also kind of an observer of it as well. What are you observing in terms of the change that is coming from this work? What are you seeing? Yeah. So when I reflect on my engagement in nonprofits and then philanthropy, oftentimes we try to choose a single issue area that we focus on. So someone might be focused on educational equity or affordable housing or the wealth gap or kind of name your single issue. And the reality is they're so interconnected. And so we got so used to saying that and it's like, well, well, then what do we do? We're just trying to alleviate poverty. And then it's like, actually, let's double, let's, let's dig, let's double click on that. And so I think that we are seeing, I'd say since 2020, for sure, there's a different level of questioning that's happening. So we're no longer having to prove to people that this is an issue, that there is a gap. Like, we, let's prove it to you with the data that there's a gap. We all know that there's that the, there are systemic injustices, systemic inequities. And those are just facts. Like, proving that, having to have a conversation about the validity of that is, that should, that, that's not a conversation for a person who's thinking about strategy and the future of our world. And so now that we're, we're, for the most part, aligned on the facts, the path forward is the next question. So philanthropy and nonprofits have tried so many different programs, direct service programs that are doing really important work, but kind of just addressing the symptoms. And finally, there's a there's like, actually, no, let's trace, like Aria was, was stating, let's, let's trace the history, let's trace how we got here. And then what is the investment of our time that we need to make to truly move us forward? Our goal is to hopefully reframe, like, this is the investment of a lifetime if we're truly serious about getting to what truly an equitable, thriving, multiracial democracy looks like. If we actually want to get there and we're not just like saying words that make us all feel good, then how do we think about racial repair? How do we think about the role of reparations? And then what is it going to take for us to get there? And so I think that that's, we're able to have that conversation more freely. In our report that we put out, we were able to have conversations with about 50 different funders and movement leaders, et cetera, it's scholars who've been doing this work for decades. And it was, there's actual momentum. Things are actually picking up. The word is like, yep, okay, reparations. Now let's talk about it. What is the strategy? And so what does it look like to resource these people who actually have the strategy? So that's that's where we, we're in that space now. And that feels like a completely different conversation than having to fight the, to have people believe that something is the truth. All right. So I want to follow up on that a little bit because um, I've thought about this issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, and idea, however you want to describe it. And what I've come to is that there may be four or five different types of people along a continuum. There are people who don't believe that there are any issues with racism in our country, and that therefore we don't really need to do anything. Just we like the inequality that exists. If it does, let's keep it like it is. We like it. Then there are people who see that there may be racism, but basically say we see it, but it's not a big deal. It's maybe one off people and you need to address those folk and then everything will be fine. Then there are other people further along the continuum who see that there's racism, but they say it's systemic, but there's probably not much we can do about it. We're just going to have to manage it and move forward. Then there are people who see that there is racism. It is systemic. We need to do something about it, but it's going to take a long time. And there are other people who say, yeah, there is racism. There's something wrong with it. We need to do something about it right now. And you can mark people along that continuum. So my question really is this. When you focus on your work, and, and Tanyelle, you just said a minute ago that we're not necessarily needing to have these conversations around whether there is this problem, right? People kind of see that. How many are those? <laughs> I still see that there are some people on that other end of that spectrum that can't be moved. 
What do we do about that? Or do we need to even worry about it? Is is that part of your when we when we talk about getting to this place where we're no longer needing reparations, right? Let's say we're getting to this place, because I want to ask you how we define that in a minute. But when we get to that place, are we basically saying forget those folk or we've actually brought them along? What are we talking about? Because those folk are also the same people who will do what you said, Aria, a minute ago. They're going to be constantly working behind the scenes to move things back, to swing that pendulum back in the other direction. Just curious what you think about that group of folk. Because it's easy to say, well, let's just forget them. You know, let's just forget them. There are enough of us who see it the right way. We're going to move forward. But they're still out there. Um, just look at the last presidential election. They're still out there. You know, look at the people who stormed the Capitol. They're still out there. You know, So I just wanted to get your thoughts about that. I'll give my quick kind of candid take on it. <laughs> I am personally at a space where I, I, I'm so grateful for the people who are on the ground leading the charge, doing the movement work and, 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 and truly enacting the strategy because there has to be a strategy for every segment of the population. I acknowledge yep. that. I also think I was actually in a call with Travian Shorters right before this conversation and he said, we need to build a different narrative. We need a better narrative. We have to talk about what we want to build, not what we want to fix. And I think that we are humans. At the core of all of us, humanity exists. And so what does it look like for us to create the world where we can all thrive? We're not operating from a space of guilt or a space of shame. There's a, there, there's a different world on the other side. And so just inviting folks into what that looks like uh, has to be inspiring. It, it has to tap into the humanity of us all. So I'll just, I'll start there, but toss it to the strategy. No, a world of abundance where we can all rise. I love that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. My favorite question is like, what does the world look like on the other side of reparations? And and I always say to people, you know, I'm not trying to fight people to get there. I'm trying to seduce people there because <laughs> it's a it's that. a joyful, amazing party that we all want to be at. So when I think about our audiences, you know, we generally think about it as there's the folks in the choir, there's the folks in the base, there's a, the persuadables, and then there's your opposition. Yeah, and the sort of more kind of conventional sort of movement thinking yeah. around it is like, you've got to figure out what's going to deeply activate your choir and your base. Persuadables is sort of a misnomer in many ways, because often you're not actually trying to persuade persuadables. You are trying to just reach them and help them understand the issue and make meaning in the way that you make meaning. And then you want to repel your opposition. And so mentors of mine and advisors who have worked on big at scale movements for change have are always quick to remind me that you don't need everyone. Right. And I will say that I think if we look back, like our opposition looks very different than the opposition looked during reconstruction. Right. So I think, I think it's not just about who do you need along that continuum, but like, where does that, spectrum of people sit within within a larger much larger continuum of like the arc bending toward justice right and and you're sort of shifting everybody as you are trying to activate specific segments of those audiences so that's kind of how i think about it basically as a, a both and okay so as the pendulum shifts over time it's not shifting back as fast or as as far right Exactly. Before it goes back in the other direction, because we've moved forward as a as a people. And progress has never linear. It has never right. been linear. And and that's but I think that's a really important thing to remember, right? Because there's there's so much despair in this world. And it can feel really easy to feel like, oh, like we didn't get this win or this thing isn't moving as fast as we wanted it to. I'm I'm hopeless. And that that hopelessness is actually so, so, so problematic for 
making sure that we actually continue to make progress, right? We have to continue to have faith and to have hope that things can change in order for us to feel motivated to make them change. So where does that come from? And this is probably going to have to be my last question for the show today. Where does your energy, your inspiration, your hope, and your vision continue to thrive? How does it continue to thrive? Given that it's not success is not linear. You do have these setbacks. There have to be days when you wake up and say, what in the world am I doing with my life? But then you do get up. And you continue with the work and you say, we're going to get through this day and we're going to go on to the next day. We're going to go on to the next day. When you're in the slog, it's a lot different than being atop the trees, thinking about where you want to go. The slog is more challenging, right? How do you deal with that? Because this is not only a question for you, it's a question for many in nonprofits. Every day is not a day that is one that we're making the kind of progress we want or we're feeling the kind of hope that we need to feel. Where does the inspiration come from? I'd say for me, I have a a four-year-old Black son with lots of personality and I I want the world to be beautiful for him. I do not want my child at any point. I'm like, I'm trying to protect him as much as I can as his mother. And so I want to be sure that he's in a school that will make him feel welcome. And he's in a space where he doesn't have additional bias, like a lens placed on his, you know, I just want him to live and be free and to thrive. And so it's both him. It's my nieces and nephews. It's my, it's the future. And, And I, that, that is like, literally, I'm about to cry right now as you ask that question, because somehow, for the most part, I've been able to dodge most bullets and jump most hurdles. And that is just, that's an additional burden. And so what does it look like to just be able to run in the fields and love and laugh and be free? And and so to know that my existence on this earth is in a teeny tiny small way, potentially contributing to that potential outcome for, for my child and the future comes after me means something. And I think that's what keeps me going for sure. Fantastic. Aria. I just think about the fact that if we don't work on it, it's not going to happen. If we do work on it, it might happen. So we must work on it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's just kind of obvious to me. I think, I think that I also feel, but what I will say is that like, what drives me and what what brings me joy when I work on it is deep love for my people, right? Like for Black communities that have overcome so much and not only just overcome so much, but done so with incredible dignity, incredible resilience, and incredible commitment to our own healing. We are a people that is trying to receive the repair that we deserve. And we are not talking about revenge. We are not talking about retaliation. We are not talking about, like, because we know that that would actually dehumanize us. Right. Because in order to dehumanize other people, you have to dehumanize yourself. So we are out here like with our souls intact and committed to keeping them intact, but also committed to the dignity that we deserve. I've been thinking about that a lot recently, and I that just makes me feel so proud and honored to be kind of standing on the shoulders of so many giants who have been keeping this torch alive since before emancipation uh, and just down to do my part. I'm glad you're doing your part. How can others do their part? How can people join you? (laughs) Well, I think the biggest thing is there is a role for philanthropy in this work. Okay, let's talk about it. This movement is 
incredible. There are so many organizations that need to be resourced and you don't, even foundations that don't have the capacity to figure out, like do all the sourcing, do all the diligence. That's why Liberation Ventures exists is to be an intermediary that knows the field well, um, that can allocate resources. And so just really excited to talk to anybody who wants to get involved in that. And I think, I, I know that so many foundations and, and high net worth individuals often ask themselves like, am I really having an impact? Like, is this world gonna be different 20 years from now because of what I am doing now? And I would say that like, this kind of long-term systems change is so important to be part of any investor's portfolio as it relates to making this world a better place. You can do the more short-term stuff, but you've got to do the long-term stuff so that you're not waking up 20 years from now and just still doing all the same short-term stuff. All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you both. You've been listening to Tanyelle Edwards and Aria Florent. Aria is CEO of Liberation Ventures. And Tanyelle is partner at the Bridgespan Group. And what a great treat it's been for me to interview both of you. I'm so grateful that you joined the show today. And I am more grateful that you're doing this really important work on behalf of all of us. And let me just say to any of you who may be listening to the Heart of Giving podcast for the first time, we are a weekly podcast. And you can find us, find new episodes every Tuesday. I hope you'll subscribe to the show by going to any major podcast platform. And if you want to support the podcast, that would be great too. You can make a gift by going to give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G, making a donation, and we will put it to great use. That I can assure you. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.